Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you very much. It's a great delight for me to be here with you. Uh, Before we look to the word of God, uh, let's pray one more time. Lord, have mercy as we Listen to those beautiful and captivating words. Have mercy on all of us. Have mercy so that we will listen. Have mercy so that we will speak. Have mercy so that we will transform our ways in the power of the Holy Spirit. May you do your work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It's a great, great delight. Um, This is my third time speaking at Christ Prez. Um, And each time I speak, my favorite part in terms of what I do before the sermon is preached in terms of preparing the sermon is making up the sermon quiz. So I know there are a number of children who are taking the sermon quiz. Uh, My son's friend Jackson apparently takes them as soon as he sits down before listening to the sermon. My son does the same thing. And I want to encourage all the children out there who are taking this sermon quiz, do that as you're listening to it rather than right now. So anyway, uh, great to be here with you. Uh, We've been going through the sermon series called James, The Ethics of Grace as a Church Together since mid-January. And we come to today's text that has been read for us. And this is, this book, the book of James, is very much in your face, isn't it? No nonsense, mince no words, tell it like it is, kind of book. Um, So for today's sermon, uh, which I've entitled as The Beautiful Reminder of Deo Volente, and we'll explain what those two words mean in just a few minutes, but if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones, please have your phone open to this passage of Bible or uh, this book of your Bible. So it's always kind of our life has changed in that many people carry their phones and in their phones or on their phones is their Bible. So let's keep that passage open, James 4, 13 through 17. As we're in this very beginning part of the sermon, I want to remind all of us of what this uh, Christian in 16th century Spain said regarding who Jesus is and why he's so special to us. Teresa of Avila, a Catholic Christian, said this, Christ is the one who never takes his eyes off of you. Someone whose loving gaze is what, assist, what sustains you, reminds you of who you are, by reminding you of whose you are. Similarly, another 16th century Christian, this time in Geneva, Switzerland, said something quite, quite similar. His name is John Calvin, perhaps a familiar, more familiar name to us. He said that union with Christ is the beginning and the end of the Christian journey, beginning in that Christ takes the first step in this beautiful union. To put it in our kind of contemporary parlance, Jesus is the one who asks you out not the other way around. He takes the first step in coming to you and speaking to you and striking up this conversation 
and kindling this beautiful relationship. And he's not only the beginning but also the end in that Christ is the goal for all of our strivings and endeavors. Or is he? That's the question. So today's sermon can be compressed and then summarized in nearly two words, Deo volente, which literally means God willing or Lord willing. Now, do you ever use those two words in your sentences, in your conversation? Do you ever say, Lord willing, we will get together, Lord willing, Lord willing, we'll do that? Because this passage that we have just read reminds us of that, reminds us of how important it is for us to remember that all that we have, all that we are, belong to the Lord. Therefore, all of our plans ought to be undergirded and marinated by this conviction that Lord willing, we'll go to Venezuela. Lord willing, we'll serve in downtown Nashville. Lord willing, we will go to this uh, place, and so on and so forth. I came to learn that when I was in graduate school. So my wife and I, from 1997 to 2001, lived in Cambridge, England. And around year 2000, uh, sort of my last year, I got stuck. I got stuck in terms of my writing my long paper called a dissertation, I think I was around page 150 or so, and I really was having a hard time. Not only was I having a hard time with my own writing project, I also having some questions about my own faith. Is this for real? I was studying history of Christianity, and I was kind of beginning to have some questions. So my advisor said, you should go to this, um, and I asked him about some kind of monastery where I can go and take some silent retreat. And he recommended that I go to the Cistercian Monastery in Leicestershire, and I did. And I learned something really, really profound. And the two words that I learned there, which I had known before, are Deo Volente. So, you know, in this kind of monastery, what they have is they have, uh, you know, several offices, daily offices, which means they pray several times throughout the day. So after each prayer service is over, they will say, Deo Volente will get together at a certain hour. I was like, Deo Volente? I mean, like, we know we're going to get together the next hour. So toward the end of my stay, I asked one of the monks there, I said, why do you keep saying Deo Volente? We know we're going to get together in three hours' time. He says, ah, Mr. Lim, there's something you don't understand. And he goes, have you read Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose? I said, well, yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with it. He goes, well, that novel is about this whole intrigue that happens in a monastery. So monastery could be a scary place. You never know what's going to happen in the next hour. That's why you keep saying, he was joking, of course, says, that's why you keep saying, Deo Volante, Lord willing, we'll get together. But ever since then, something really kind of clicked within me. That so often... I have bought into this idolatry of life in America or life in the West that says, I have everything under my control. My life's goal is to make sure that as many things as possible are under my control. I want to make sure that our finances are under our control, our kids are under our control, my professional life is under our control, and we want to make sure that we time everything and keep track of everything. One thing I loved about, you know, teaching overseas and learning overseas, you know, as I was uh, preaching uh, in Kenya, as we were seeing in our last hymn, there is a power and power and the power and the blood of Jesus. You know that, as we were singing this last song in, my, in our first service, that transported me back to Kenya. Where I was preaching in this church, this Pentecostal church, and we were clapping and dancing, and, and, you know, the whole service lasts about three hours and 45 minutes, and when I asked the pastor, how much time do I have to preach? He says, as long as the Lord will let you. We, know, <laughs> we like to say amen to that, but we would like to make sure that we go back to our Sunday lunches and so on too, so I'll be sure that we get to the end of our sermon pretty quickly. 
So Teo Volente, Lord willing, we'll get to have our lunch. Lord willing, we'll get to go to middle school. Lord willing, we'll get to get married. Lord willing, we'll move to this other place. Lord willing, we will do what we plan to do. So today's sermon is um, actually, I'll go through them pretty quickly, but they are not just typical three, but there are four points to the sermon. The first point is misguided confidence in ordinary secular thinking. Misguided confidence in ordinary secular thinking. And we see that in verse 13. So with your phones or with your Bibles, let's take a listen. James says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. He's saying this is a misguided confidence of ordinary secular thinking. Now, we're all guilty of it. Let's face it. We're all guilty of planning things, often without asking God. I came here with our son and my wife in 2006. I'm from Philadelphia, born in Korea, grew up in the city of the brotherly love, and, and I never really thought that I would live in the South ever in my life. And when we moved here in 2006, I did not think I would live here for 10 years. If I could write my own script, I wouldn't be living in Nashville, although I enjoy it immensely and call it a home everywhere I go. Last, just two days ago, I was in Wheaton, Illinois, speaking at Wheaton College, and guess what? There's snow over there, and I miss Nashville so much. <laughs> but again, I did not plan to live here for 10 years. I did not plan to call Nashville a home until recently. See, here, the verse says, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. When I read that, past, that verse in preparing for the sermon, it really hit me in just so much. It really convicted me. Yes, that was exactly what I was saying. I'll go to the city, spend a year there, and then move somewhere else. There is a misguided confidence of ordinary secular thinking. By secular, I don't mean anything pernicious or negative. Secular simply means the word seculum. The Latin word means this world. It means everything is under the sun. That all of my planning is done without any reference point to God. Even though we're Christians, so often we do that. So often when we say, you know, when someone says, hey, can we have lunch together? We say, of course, we'll do that. And a week later, we will do it. And we kind of become habituated in doing that, filling our Google calendars and iCalendars with these appointments that go into a year down the road. I'm supposed to be teaching in Vancouver, British Columbia in July 2017. Will I really get to do it? I hope so. Do I know it for sure? I do not know. That is my honest truth. And we're caught up in this. Today or tomorrow, we'll go here and spend a year there. You know what is truly surprising about this text? This sounds so contemporary. We do this. Our calendars are full of dates, meetings, meals, weddings that are planned all the way through next year. And you know what? I appreciate this text so much because he tells it just like it is. No nonsense kind of guy. He says there is something tragically, tragically misguided about the way most of us think. We plan things without really asking God, is this what you desire? And so, in essence, even though we live and think as Christians, so we think we do, but when we examine the way that we plan things, the way we do things, the way we kind of, you know, kind of orchestrate our life's affairs, in many ways, we're far more secular than we're like to admit. 
We say, I will do, I will do this, buy this house, build a business, send my kids to this type of school, play this sport, go into this college, marry that girl sitting over there next pew, marry that boy at some other church or whatever. And all of this can be easily done without any reference point to God at all. That's what James is saying. There is a misguided confidence of ordinary secular thinking. And that leads me actually to my second point. That is, merciful assessment of our finitude. Merciful assessment of our finitude. We find that in verses 14 and 15. Let's read that. James says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? Your mist that appears for a little while and then, poof, vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. Again, absolutely in your face. And that's similar to Sheldon Van Oken's book, Severe Mercy. And what James offers here is a severe mercy. We may not like what he says. It may bother us. It kind of rubs us the wrong way. Yet this severe, merciful assessment of our finitude is exactly what we need. Why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're mist that appears for a little while, and then off we go. He's talking about two things. He's talking about our finitude. We don't know. We do not know what tomorrow holds. We think we do. All of us are planning to go to work or stay at home, send our kids to school. We have all of these things that we have planned. And we have reasonable confidence that they will happen because they have always happened in a way. Tomorrow has always come to us so far, right? By virtue of the fact that you're sitting here, by virtue of the fact that you're listening to this online somewhere, means that you have received that tomorrow, which is present. Which, by the way, is a present from God. We call this present today a present because it is a gift. And we never think of it as a gift. Unless you've been really, really sick, unless you really thought that there will be no tomorrow, then you begin to appreciate that tomorrow, which is today, which is present. Our present moment is a gift from God. Now that, I think, is more than anything else, the best kind of gem that we can share with each other. That, to me, is a spiritual nugget to recognize that today that we have is not something that I take for granted, although we do all the time. I do all the time. But we need to recognize that today's a gift. It's a, it's, that's why it's called present moment. Present it is. Our finitude. So we, have, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Not only that we have what scholars call epistemic finitude, we don't know things. God knows things. God knows everything. We don't know everything. There's also that sort of fragility of our ethical standards. We make mistakes. We hurt people. We get hurt, and we become the sort of victims of bad people's bad decisions sometimes. Not only that, there is a frailty. James calls us mist. Imagine that. We're just a mist that shows up, and then in the morning that's there, but then by 11, 13 a.m., it's gone. Poof, it goes. So, because of this frailty and finitude, people have devised various solutions about this. And there is a, a scholar that I really like a lot. There's a philosopher named Thomas Hobbes. By the way, some of you may remember this cartoon series called Calvin and Hobbes. Did you know that Calvin and Hobbes was actually entitled after John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes? Because John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes were two early modern thinkers who really talked a lot about our own kind of you know, deterministic universe. And Thomas and, I mean, Calvin and Hobbes are always trying to get past this universe that seems to be determined, trying to exercise our human freedom. 
Thomas Hobbes, in his very well-known book called The Leviathan, has something really, really controversial, but I think is worth, uh, these words are worth for us to ponder and let them challenge you a little bit. He says that people have created religions in the world because of ignorance of causes of the past and fear of the future. He says, we don't know why things happen in the past, we don't know what will happen tomorrow, so we better create religion. He says, it is impossible for a man who continually endeavors to secure himself against the evil he fears and procure the good he desires not to be in a perpetual solicitude, which in today's word means fear, of the time to come. So that every person, especially those that are over-provident, which in today's parlance means super-anxious, to be inordinately dependent on religion. He says, okay, do you know why people are religious? Because they don't know about tomorrow. That that's why people are religious. Now, that to me is a very, very important secular challenge to Orthodox Christianity. Is that why you're a Christian? Are you at church because you don't know about tomorrow? Is that what it is? Because that's at least one way that people have dealt with it. But to me, there's a kind of real merciful assessment. We don't know what tomorrow holds at all, and moreover, you don't last long. You know, one of the songs that I used to like when I was younger was a song by this German band called, called Alphaville. Uh, they had a song called Forever Young. It's a cry for prolongation of our hopes and aspirations in the face of something starkly opposite. So Alphaville sang with these words, sitting in a sandpit, life is a short trip and music played by a madman. Or to borrow a bit more rarefied expression, this time from Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth. These words may be familiar to a lot more of us. Uh, Seton is Macbeth's chief servant, and he announces in Act 5, Scene 5, that the queen is dead. Faced with this human inevitability called death against which everything else seems futile, Macbeth cries out, saying this, thusly, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Creeps in this petty face, pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying absolutely nothing at all. Instead of saying that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and signifying nothing, James offers a gracious alternative Look with me in verse 15. James says, instead, you ought to say, if it is in the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Life is not just one blessed thing after another. Life is not one dang thing after another that just kind of somehow coalesce together and we don't know if everything is a chance. Life is not a sort of a, a concatenation of time plus chance plus matter. No, life is something that is purposively orchestrated by God. Therefore, as creatures, not creators, it does behoove us, young and old, teenager as well as 70-somethinger, we ought to ask the Lord, if it is your will, if it is your will. Because that, to me, demonstrates that dependence we have on God. You know, many of us are parents, and, you know, if you have children who are constantly dependent on you, there may be a point where you get a little bit tired of it. Like, okay, you're now 55 and you're still dependent on me. That's not good. But our God, 
Our God, our triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit takes absolute delight every age, at any stage in our life journey, that we become dependent and entirely dependent on God and say, here I am again. I want you to show me where I need to go. I want you to show me what to say, how I should behave as we interact with this multiple kind of, you know, globalized, pluralistic world. Lord, help me to be your agent of reconciliation and ambassador of the gospel if it is indeed your will. And this beautiful reminder of Deo Volente, if the Lord wills. And that leads me to the third and closely related point. Not only have we looked at this kind of a merciful assessment of our own finitude, the third point is miserable failure of control madness. Miserable failure of control madness. And we see that in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. Let me share with you a, a, sort of a version uh, similar to this that happened at graduation 2012 in Wellesley High School in Wellesley, Massachusetts. So if you know anything about well, the town of Wellesley, it's a very elite New England town. It really is. There is Wellesley College, one of the leading women's all-female college in, in the country. And Wellesley is, you know, one of those kind of very, very elite New England towns. And in this high school graduation, Mr. David McCullough, uh, was in, and was, and I believe still is, an English teacher there, and he was the commencement speaker. And he commented on the sameness and indistinguishable nature of the student's uh, commencement gown. And by the way, this speech went viral, absolutely viral on YouTube because of what he says in the commencement uh, speech, which he says, basically, you're not special. Let me read certain portions here. He says, and your cer ceremonial costume, shapeless uniform, one size fits all, where, whether male or female, tall or short, scholar or slacker, spray tan prom queen or intergalactic Xbox assassin, each of you is dressed. You will notice exactly the same. And your diploma, except for your name, exactly the same. And all this is as it should be because none of you is special. You're not special. You're not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests, your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, what is that dinosaur called? Barney, thank you, Barney. That nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your maternal, maternal cape crusader has souped you in to save you, you are nothing special. Yes, you've been pampered, doted upon, helmeted, bubble-wrapped. Yes, capable adults with other things to do have held you, kissed you, fed you, wiped your mouth, wiped your bottom, trained you, taught you, tutored you, coached you, and listened to you, counseled you, encouraged you, consoled you, and encouraged you again. You've been feted and fawned over and called sweetie pie. Yes, you have. And certainly, we've been to your games, your plays, your recitals, your science fairs. Absolutely, smiles ignite when you walk into a room, and hundreds gasp with delight at your every tweet. But do not get the idea that you're anything special because you're not special. Now, ever wonder why? I mean, you, did you know that this went viral? Did you know about this speech? But why do you think it really resonated with so many people in the world? It's an you know, in many ways, an ordinary, I mean, just any other high school graduation speech given by one of their beloved English teacher, 
I think what he says is you're not special is there's something about this that we think we're so special, we are living in this context, and um, so we ask this question, with what should I feed my ego, myself, this fragile and future-fearing self, or this self that thinks it's so special that the world needs to bow down to it, that red carpet should be rolled out in an auto mode everywhere I walk out onto, etc. We're not special, Mr. McCullough says, but is this reminder really the gospel truth? Do you remember the movie or the novel Life of Pi? Do you remember Richard Parker? The tiger, he's that 450-pound Bengal tiger who ends up being the frenemy of Pai Patel, the main character of this story. Pai Patel was so deeply interested in faith and religion of all types, and while en route to America, the Japanese cargo ship that had all the animals and their families sinks and leaves Richard Parker, this lonesome tiger, and Pai on this tiny lifeboat for 227 desolate days baking themselves out in the middle of the ocean for that long period, lost at sea, losing their minds, and you cannot even go to sleep because Richard Parker is ready to devour you at any moment. How many of you have seen that movie? Remember the, the, those scenes, right? I mean, how did you feel? Do you remember how you felt? You put yourself in that pie shoes. You're barely awake because that tiger can, can come at you at any time. You're so thirsty, so your inventiveness gets better and better, and you become much more creative. You're now sort of self-sustaining. But you feel that desolation. You feel that dryness. You feel that parched throat of yours and soul of yours, and you don't know who to turn to. And that, to me, really typifies the human identity. That in many ways, you might think that you have everything under control, but there is a real inexorable sense of miserable failure of our control madness. More than anything else, that scene, those extended, protracted scenes in their life of pie for me, really spoke powerfully about that desperate need we have for someone bigger than ourselves, someone much more merciful than ourselves, someone far more gracious than ourselves, to come and let Richard Parker go and sweep me from underneath. That miserable failure of control madness that ends up with despair that we all have. The writer says, look, and you know, you boast in your arrogant schemes. You think you're going to go to America and start your zoo? Guess what happened? That may not be the case at all. That leads me to my last point, actually, and that is mismatch overcome in Christ our righteousness. And we see that in verse 17. Let's read that. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. It is a sin for them. What does that mean? So that means there's something that is really stark about the standards that our world has established and our universe has. There are certain laws like laws of astrophysics, laws of gravity, that try as we might, we're not able to overcome it or defy it. And that's just life as we know it. There are certain things like traffic laws. You can choose to obey it, you can choose to disobey it, but there are consequences that come at us. Here it says that if anyone then knows the good they ought to do, meaning law or standard, and if you don't do it, then that is sin. So he's kind of clearly, clearly presenting a marker for us. But for our sake, and as we are calling this mismatch overcome in Christ our righteousness, 
Let's flip it and think of it this way. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does it rather than doesn't do it, then it is righteousness for him or for them. Let, let me unpack it. All right? So several years ago, I was a, almost two decades ago, I was a seminary student. 25 years ago, that's been a long time, 24 years. So, and I was in Pennsylvania going to seminary, and there is a kind of a state highway called 309. And certain segment of Route 309 has a speed limit of 35 miles per hour. 35 miles per hour. And I'm driving along, driving along, you know, in the evening hour, probably going to church, and I see this kind of, you know, this dastardly combination of red and blue light turning and turning and turning. And I'm like, what? You know, I got pulled over. And I was so upset because you know how fast I was going at this 35-mile zone? I was going 38 miles per hour. Does that sound fair to you? 38 miles per hour I was going, I got pulled over. So before the officer could say anything to me, I shot back at him and said, guess how fast I was going because I was really upset. And he was, I was about to tell you that. And well, I, I was going 38 miles an hour. I said, there you go. 38 miles an hour is a 35-mile zone. And the officer looked totally befuddled. He's like, and he asked this very penetrating question. He said, sir, did you or did you not break the traffic law? What would you answer? Did, or, did I or did I not break the traffic law? I mean, 38 miles in a 35-mile zone, did I break the traffic law? Oh, there are several attorneys in the room. You know, I mean, that depends on the interpretation of the law, does it? But the clear reading of the letter of the law says, if it says 35, and if I have registered 38, then I have broken the law. Did I find that legal administration happy outcome? Absolutely not. Did I get a warning for it? No, I did not get a warning. I got a ticket. I didn't just get a warning, and I was just, I mean, when I realized that I couldn't go any further, I was like, please, you know, it was only 30 hours trying to cajoling with him, trying to bargain with him. I, for whatever reason, he wasn't going to go anywhere. He says, you broke the law, I'm going to give you a ticket. Now, we can, you know, sit down here and give all kinds of hypothetical explanations as why that might have happened, right? And we do. Maybe the guy was in a bad mood, they need to fill their quota, I don't know what it is, but I could not plead my ignorance based upon the legal observance. 38 is not 35. The last time I checked my arithmetic, 38 is higher than 35, yes? Elementary school came in that, right? I mean, 38 is higher than 35. That means I've broken the law. In the presence of the law, all of us, all of us once again, every one of us in this universe, every one of us in our history, from time immemorial till now, nobody can say that I've kept the law perfectly. Ah, but except for one. James says that if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So we have flipped it. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and does it, it is righteousness for him and as a result for us. That to me is the beauty of the gospel. What the first Adam could not do, Jesus did. What Ad, the first Adam did, namely committing this self-righteous declaration of, against, declaration of self-independence against God, Jesus submits to the will of the one who sent him. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. 
what the first parents, Adam and Eve, could not do. And there's a beautiful stained glass at King's College, Cambridge, in the chapel, where it, on the top panel, it shows the disobedience of Eve in that she takes the food from the serpent. But at the bottom panel, there's a beautiful stained glass of Mary in that kind of annunciation. She says, let it be, I am the maidservant of the Lord, let it be done to me as the Lord wills. Deo volente. In what Eve didn't do, Mary overturns it in a way, in that human obedience. But Mary herself was also obedient to her God. She knew that the child that she bore is an extraordinary messianic figure who is indeed the very God, a very God. So in Christ, we find that. So mismatch overcome in Christ our righteousness. All of us drive at 38 miles an hour in a 35-mile zone. And we could be self-righteous and say, yeah, but there's somebody who drove 53 miles an hour and they got the ticket. I'm better than they are. And we do that all the time. Let's be honest. We do it every day. At least I'm not half bad as that person over there. At least I'm not as whatever in unrighteous as that person over there. At least I do. I, I pay my taxes. All right. Well, you know, okay. I, but I pay my taxes. And we establish our systems of righteousness racially based, socioeconomically based, class based, or whatever it is. We establish all kinds of horizontal righteousness systems. And Jesus comes and says, all of you do not qualify. You have driven at 38 miles an hour. Let me give you a ticket and I'll pay for it. And you can go scot-free. But I'm letting you go so that you learn to delight in that number 35. Because in doing so, that'll be a reminder of whose you are. Let us come to this Jesus, because you know what I've often said to students that I've had, that if you're not a particularly good preacher, make sure you give the Lord's Supper every Sunday, because people of God need to take something away from the sermon, from the worship service. This, the Lord's Supper, is the edible gospel, the gospel that is proclaimed with words we're about to eat with our touch with our hands, taste with our mouth, drink with our mouth. So anyone can say, along with the psalmist, Moses in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses says, you know, Lord, teach me to number my days aright because I don't know how many more days I will have to drive at 35 miles per hour. I simply do not know, so to teach me what I can do. So I hope we can all say, after the service today, as you see your friends and say goodbye, Lord willing, I'll see you next Sunday. And mean that. Because we may or may not have that next Sunday. Because we, as a large congregation as this is, we not only celebrate the coming of children's birth, but we also say goodbye to our beloved ones as they leave this world into the bosom of our loving Heavenly Father. So we realize the fragility and frailty and affinity of our existence. So what better way to once again express our faith in this living God but by saying, Deo volente, Lord willing, we will see you soon. Amen.